to you all. Very welcome here today. It's a special Poetry Day Ireland, a flow of words uncorked on Scarif Bay Community Radio with Mount Shannon Arts. And Poetry Day is an annual island-wide celebration of poetry which invites the nation to read, write and share a poem. And today we're joined by four Flow of Words regular contributors, Nikki Griffin, Kevin Chesser, Ruth Marshall and Arthur Watson. And they're going to share some of their poetry and others and maybe some of their thoughts behind the poems, what the poems mean to them and what poetry in general means to them. And we're going to uncork the message in this Poetry Day bottle on the flow of words. And we're also delighted to welcome Lucy Thomas and Tom Fahey, who will provide the musical accompaniment. And um, Lucy on clarinet, Tom on guitar. And if you like what you hear here tonight, come back in a month's time to the Montana Arts Festival, where um, Lucy and Tom will be joined by more and uh, they perform as quarter jazz on music in the marquee on the Sunday of the Montshannon Arts Festival. You can get your tickets for that event and all the events on montshannonarts.ie. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to invite Nikki Griffin to kick off proceedings and um, give her a warm welcome and thanks. Hello everybody, I'm delighted to be here as part of this. Um, now, message in a bottle is the theme, but messages in a bottle can come in many forms, so there's a few different types of poems I'm going to read tonight. Um, the first one, now, we live in a world of misinformation, as you all know, so this first poem is very much about that. Streetwise. The pretty street is lined with gas lights convincing in their Victorian guise, throwing down a mantle of respectability. Nothing to see in the shadows, you know, and that thing you noticed that slithered away wasn't there. You can trust me. Look how the street is bordered with lime trees and flowers in gardens where all is normal and blackbirds sing. You can't believe those scientists, you know, they have an agenda. They're trying to fool you. Don't let them pull the wool. See the golden bricked terrace of houses, front doors that open on hallway and rooms of laughing children and smiling parents. You need to listen to me, you know. The facts are in my words, not theirs. You need to be careful what you read. Here in the street the sun shines bright and nobody notices lengthening shadows or how the gaslighting burns on and on. <laughs> Now, many years ago, my husband and I, we used to go hill walking. We did a lot of walking in Scotland, and uh, we used to go off in our, in our little camper van with two big dogs, two greyhound-sized lurchers, um, which was great when it was raining, I can tell you. Um, this particular time, we were going to walk up Ben McDewey, which is the second highest mountain in Scotland, in the Cairngorms. Um, now, most of my poems aren't actually about me. This one was based on the trip that we took. On Ben McDewey. Coming down the mountain through giant scree, dogs disappearing between blocks, reappearing further on, fog thick, soaking above the peaty terrain. We'd lost our way through stupidity, parsimony really, failure to buy the map that joined one path to another, a matter of metres, 
or in those days yards, but foolish, in fog at the top of a cairngorm, even with compass and survival gear. Suddenly, the broken aircraft, parts scattered across rocks and bog, decades old it looked. We stopped and sat, the two dogs curled beside us, even they were exhausted. We had no words, barely dared look at each other, we too off the path, plunging into the unknown. We did eventually get back to the van. <laughs> now, you may have come across guerrilla gardeners. I'm a keen gardener myself. Guerrilla gardeners take on unused ground, often in cities, but try and put it to good purpose. Uh, so this one's called Guerrilla. It's about a gardener, as you will see. Guerrilla. It began with a garden fork found in a skip, a packet of seeds, finding this place where the hum of city traffic is muffled. On the first day, she stood in the space, abandoned between two broken-down buildings, fractured concrete, the sunshine yellow of dandelions. On the second day, she gathered into her bin liner tin cans, plastic bottles, condoms, happy meal detritus, watched a starling who watched her. On the third day, she levered up crazed paving with crowbar and willpower and piled it next to the three-storey windowless wall. After that, she turned the soil in the dimness of dawn, stolen time, borrowed garden, and bordered her beds with pieces of brick gleaned from between. Her seeds were sown in plant pots she made from things that were scattered, from plastic bottles, from throwaway cups, and set upon her window ledge. She works the land, and now it bears fruit, kale, parsley, courgettes, lettuce, and marigolds for the joy they give and time for herself and the courage to carry on. We don't have much darkness anymore, even here in Mount Shannon, even where I live up the back of Mount Shannon, you can see the lights everywhere, so this poem is very much about that kind of thing. Sky glow. We have mislaid our jewelled night, the clogged city sky bereft of stars, shrouded in a glowing dome of light. We used to lie hand in hand on a summer lawn at midnight, gaze at the long spill of Milky Way and imagine God stretching to infinity. But now the brilliance of stars has leaked away and all I see is a motorway of satellites. You tell me it doesn't matter that light snaking to the suburbs must be expected for a species that can barely see in the dark. But some nights, even the moon struggles to show her quivering face, and Orion no longer sparkles. His belt is unbuckled, and that is unbuckling me. <clears throat> this one's called Another Life. The room was everything she'd known. Set of drawers, table, fireside chair, Newborn safe within her arms, eyelids fluttering, skin so freshly made you could see through it, wrapped in warmth in home. In the distance, another thwomp, a tearing sound as though the sky were being unzipped. Closer today, tomorrow they must leave. Now, the final poem. Sometimes a message in a bottle brings you something you really don't expect. 
The Giraffe, after Matthew Sweeney. It wasn't a hedgehog that turned up at my door with its spiky capacity to roll into a ball, but a giraffe. And not my door, but an upstairs window. I was shaking out the duster when there it was. I could hardly invite it in, as Matthew did his hedgehog, but I greeted it in a cordial manner, admiring its long eyelashes and steady gaze. Had it escaped from a circus? Was a circus allowed to tour with exotic animals? And anyway, surely a giraffe would never fit through the door of the big top. Although once in there it would do all right, the space being high enough for the flying trapeze and its spangled acrobats. The giraffe blinked then stuck its head through my bedroom window, at which point I hurriedly stepped back. A giraffe head is very large, much bigger than you might realise from seeing one on TV. As it looked around, I gave the two furry knobs between its ears a quick rub with my duster. Satisfied with what it saw, it withdrew and ambled off, snatching a mouthful of eucalyptus leaves on the way, the tree being tall enough to service a giraffe's culinary needs. Should I call the authorities? Firebraid? Please? I watched the giraffe meander along the road towards the mountain, mumbling leaves from birch and ash. Perhaps I ought to have offered it a cup of tea. <laughs> Thank you very much.
can say senior hurling now for me. <laughs> um, it's great to be here amongst all these uh, published and prize-winning poets. Uh, I'm very much an apprentice at this business, but uh, I'll give it a lash anyway for tonight. Um, thanks for the music, lads. Uh, it's great to have a message in a battle that you don't have to decipher. Like, and it's probably what poetry is trying to find. You know, you know, you don't question the music, and it's lovely, really, really nice. Loved it. Um, so, I'll spin a battle for you. Um, when uh, Roisin invited me down, uh, I'm going to blame Roisin. The complaints department will be open later on. You can give out to her you know, if you don't like what I'm going to inflict upon you. Anyway. Uh, <coughs> I'd like to spin a battle, it's a green and white battle, uh, and I'll explain what that means. On the 26th of August, 1690, Williamite troops uh, surrounded Limerick and they made a breach in the walls. And the Jacobite troops inside were aided and, and abetted by the Limerick women who uh, basically shielded them. Which is odd when you think of the meaning of the word Limerick, which means, some people think it means Lomniak, which means bare spot. But also, if you go back further into the Dinshankas, it means kind of cloaked or mantled or shielded. So these fiery women, who were talked about in the courts of Holland as fierce, passionate women given to and prone to violence, which is a lot of stereotyping going on there then. Um, so these women, anyway, I suppose in the day they would have spoken Irish. So I was trying to imagine what one of these women would say to her confessor when she went to confession. And the only way I could kind of match the Irish is to come up with some of the colloquialisms I heard growing up as a boy in Limerick. So I'm going to read this for you and hopefully it'll work. It's called Confession on Dialand. That's the apostrophe. Anyway, August 1691. Bless me, Father, for what sins are these, sweet Jesus and his blessed modern father. They'll soon be singing limericks a lady, but any bure can be a bit of a lad. Chalk it down, hard as any langer around the town. Know what I mean? Grenadiers gawking up hungry's piebalds, Brandenburgers with their ladies' bonnets, threatening they'd deflower every last bure who stood fast by the falls of Curragor. Go on over that. Wouldn't ride him for spite, sorry father, but actin' the maggot they were, mountain the holy church and our blessed mother, even the tide wouldn't go out with him. Wreck your head so they would, more than a soldier's bure in their jib. We know what hard is, white wit from the crib. Come up out of the fog, we gave him hard. Soft by like babies after doing their business, told him where to go, up Jack's hole and around the corner. I've a way with words, don't I, father? Gets the better of me, that English thrall. Spread me mantle, ne'er a one under me shawl. The gimp and the gatch of me in furry caps, hanging with bells, scaring the horses. Ne'er the one the decent skin beneath. Box the head off my did before they scattered. Chancers, knobjackies and shapers, like all pestering men, dare to garrison us outside the walls like cattle. Mouldy bastards smelling a dog mange, wouldn't even ride those shown ponies into battle. Poor Sarsfield crater, one of our own, gone from this bare spot so fair to us, made his peace with broken treaties and Thai soldiers, live out our years on Dylange, shielded by twin rivers. God forgive us, Father, I was a dinger at pagan stones, wailed into them, wore into them, and would again, through piss pots and barrels of pig's blood, cut their throats and let them bleed out with Neptune's kiss on the Shannon tide. What's me penance, Father? Throw it into me, Father. Me back is long. <laughs>
Okay. Um, I'll try and read from another battle now. This one was a, more of a kind of a, not a green and white one, but a, a genie in a battle. Uh, I had the privilege in 2020 to be in Kerala in South India, and uh, on New Year's Day I broke my glasses. 2020 vision, there you go. But anyway, I came across an optician in this kind of very chaotic Indian village, uh, and it was called Perfect Vision was the name of the shop. And underneath was the the tagline, the most excellent opticians in Malipuram. So uh, he gave me a vision card, you know these vision cards that you get you know, to test your eyesight and so on, and all the fonts were getting smaller and smaller as you go down along the page. And um, I don't know how well this will work in performance, it probably works better on, on page, but we, we'll try it anyway. The, 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 the vision card was something else, it was really something fabulous, so I'll, I'll try and reenact what happened, it's in two parts. Okay, here we go. New, uh, perfect Vision 2020. New Year's Day, Kerala. One. On the first day of this year of Perfect Vision, my spectacles broke. Blind from dusty road and chaos of Angeles heat, I leave sandals on the optician's threshold, step into that climate-controlled glass box under a shop sign boasting in bold letters, Perfect Vision the most excellent opticians in Malipuram. Statuesque in her blue sari, the cleaner fixes my blurred gaze, gracefully glides like a Virgin Mary on a cushion of cool air. She shines the alabaster floor, glazed of any trace of primal blemish. Might she even cleanse raw dust from my feet? The elderly optician, glasses crowning his head, nods with all-seeing eyes towards an array of spectacle frames. He offers me a vision test card, whose swollen tide of fonts myop myopically narrows down to an imperceptible bare trickle. This I saw and found. Two. It was an old tree, years back. God's tide carried seed to the island, lodged on the rocks, took root there. The tree sprung up. Beneath its crown, it sheltered a small family. There, grandfather took pride of place. Window, love, ponder, magic. Ponder, love, magic, window. The old man taught his son's sacred ways to cast nets, mindful of the sea's bounty. But the distant city lured his son away to labor in its many manufactories. He had no grandson, only Sive, his granddaughter, left behind but never out of sight. Story, vision, create, wonder, delight. Create, wonder, vision, delight, story. Sive never dressed for school, work at home kept her busy. Take love, wonder, take magic, delight, take story, window. Sive was taught all a girl should know with store. She could do all things as well as any, better, even more beyond. Ponder, pattern, years, growth, years, growth, pattern, ponder. So there you have it. It's a kind of a, a found home. Okay. Um, so... Um, there was a, an Irish scholar in the 9th century, it's gone back a bit now, 
But in the ninth century, there was an Irish scholar called Sedulius. He was given to the Latin, so I presume he forgot his name, like Martin O'Mara or whatever his name was. But anyway, he lived in Liège and he wrote a short piece on the side of one of the manuscripts that he was writing. And this was the piece he wrote. To go to Rome is little profit, endless pain. The master you seek in Rome, you find at home or seek in vain. So with that, I would like to move on to a poem that a lot of people learnt in school. It's in Irish, and uh, I'll try to read it in my Gaelga Brishta, but uh, I translated it as well, which is great for somebody trying to learn the trade of writing poems. Uh, I translated it into, well, my not so Gaelic Clishta. But anyway, so it's called Cool and Tea. You probably know it, some of you. Anyway, it's by Sean O'Riordan. And this is a bottle of Mountain Dew, I'd say. Ta tirnanog er coolan ti, tiraling trinakela, luk kerakos seg shul nasli, gan broga orhu na lena, gan berla a kult na gelga, ak fasen kloka er gatrim, satirsha trinakela, is lauter changa er coolati, nar hig en ar ak esap, is ta she shud so cranish. Ta kerka own is al shikin, is laka rin mohelok. Is gair mor dove mar naid satir, igdrana le gakenya, is kat ig kroon le grenya. Sakoina, here ta bank travail, is untishi and tilaun, quinlor, bukli, shan hata ti, is trumpa balav neta, is kittle barn margeon. Is own a hagen tinkeri, ganetha trina kela, ta gela kol de coolan ti, is bidig ira derke, or cool gak ti in airing. Boalum ve er coolan ti, sa dirkup godenuk, go vekinaun er coot gali, and talavin shin esup is e in a fuka lenta. So my translation goes, you all know what Tirnanog is, don't you? Yeah, the land of youth, eternal youth. Okay. Tirnanog's at the back of the house, a higgledy piggledy up in the heap country, where the four legged walks its byways without shirt nor shoe, English nor Irish. Here an ample cloak grows on every back. Chaos rules the heart in this land of crack. And tongues spoken at the back of the house haven't been heard since Aesop's day and he and his likes deep under clay. Here are hens, a clutch of chickens, a duck soft in the head but stubborn as an ass, a black vexed collie like your worst enemy makes your blood thicken, never sure is he bearing his teeth or smiling as you pass. As the cat stretches herself out, milking the sun on the daylight grass. In a nook out back, see a bank of bric a brac, life's fossil treasure trove, thrown out on a midden, bereft and sung, candlesticks, buckles, an old straw hat, and a mute trumpet worthless without a tongue, and a kettle so white, like a goose waking late, hearing you courteously walk a visitor out beyond the gander at the gate. Our walking tribe make their sacred pilgrimage here, giddied by all they see, only they and children can see. Here in our America at home, pavies carouse for arms of forsaken treasure. They beg a lonely plea in that mist rule strewn out back behind every Irish house. At the back of a house, I yearn to see, late in the dead dark of night, changeling treasures visited by stardust, 
perhaps greeting the magic moonlight, that child savant spirit, Aesop the just, blessing us all with his ghostly learning. Sinead. Uh, uh, so I, I said to Roshi and I would do uh, some originals and some covers. This is a cover, um, and I want you to join in. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's got a chorus, well not really a chorus, but it's a kind of a, a, a refrain. It's three words, Timmy Coffee's Cat. That's all you have to remember. And when I give you the nod, you say Timmy Coffee's Cat. Very easy. It's written from a, a Badike man named Sonny Welsh from Cahar Hurley. And it was sung by the box player Joe Fitz and often requested by the late great Seamus Begley uh, of Joe Fitz to sing. So please join in the refrain. Okay, here we go. Timmy Coffey's cat. The year was 67, it has been known to one and all, when his sickness on his animal, all of a sudden it did fall. The saviour of our parish, from every mouse and rat, t'was a noble animal, t'was Timmy Coffey's cat. Now the cat had a headache and lay on the windowsill, and says Tim, but for the slippery road I'd send for Dr Bill. But the cat was worse next morning, his vision was obscured. So he called in a neighbour, a man named Paddy Stewart. Paddy viewed the sickly beast and then he walked about, saying this could be contagious, it might be foot and mouth. But feed him M&B tablets and a dose of kitty cat, and before nine days are passed and gone, he'll be broad and full shaken fat. The cure was good, his whiskers stood, his eyes got big and bright, and many the ugly mouse and rat, indeed he put to flight. He chased them down through Brady's place, through trenches lying flat. They were running helter-skelter from There what You're great. There was an ancient warrior rat with whiskers long and grey. This is the bad part. He left his hide one moonlit night in the townland of Cool Ray. He crossed the river at the bridge, and what do you think of that? But he didn't know the danger of And when he saw this killer, he was him afraid to meet. He put his tail between his legs and beat a fast retreat. He hurried home to his ugly wife and his numerous clan of rogues, saying, I'll never venture further than the shelter of Minogues. Long live this noble animal, and to Timmy may he always be true. And may he keep rats from the homes of me and you. And may his whiskers stand out straight. And his back be broad and fat. For the savour of our parish is... Oh, you're brilliant. You're, uh, uh, you're unreal. Uh, we have time for one more. Okay. Um, okay um, I'll read one more. And it's, um, it's, 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 it's not a cover. It's called Waiting for the Call. God forgive me, but that phone in the hall won't speak unless spoken to. Grand, thanks for asking. It is how it is, waiting for the call. No bother at all, nothing strange or peculiar apart from myself. Is that dust gathering on my delf? Sure, it is how it is, waiting in the hall. Turn down the heat, sit with me here in the dark. The world's so busy, divil the bit of news on the telly. It is how it is, waiting for that call. Telecom bill under this phone seat, 
Antiques like myself can't even be bought now at all. Talk is cheap until you go making a call. It is what it is waiting in this hall. Wallpaper set for a comeback. Always liked the bamboo pattern in the hall. Matches my picture of sainted poor Paul. It is how it is waiting in the hall. But blessed Paul and God knows I'm flying up through those walls, past those three plastered ducks, dear dead Paddy's present I always hated, crashing through that bamboo jungle, and the air come girl insists, it all depends on your bundle. Pride does come before making a call. When I pick up that mute lump of yellowed plastic Alana, for who is it? that always gives the call. I am a newscaster with my own peculiar antenna. So this is how it can be, this waiting for the call. Okay. Uh, that's, that's one of my own. Uh, that was one of my own, yeah, yeah. Uh, am, am I done? Will you do one? <laughs> well, well, oh, no, I, I, I'll do one more and it's a cover and I hope you like it. It's. Um, it's written by a woman called Helen Waddell and she died in 1965 and she wrote it on the passing of a loved one and she grew up in the Morn Mountains. <clears throat> I shall not go to heaven when I die but if they let me be I think I'll take a road I used to know that goes by Schlieve Nagara and the sea and all day breasting me the wind will blow and I'll hear nothing but the peewits cry and the sea talking in the caves below. I think it will be winter when I die, for no one from the north could die in spring, and all the heather will be dead and grey, bog cotton will have blown away, and there'll be no yellow on the wind. But I shall smell the peat, and when it's almost dark I'll set my feet where a white track goes glimmering to the hills and see far up a light. Would you think heaven could be so small a thing as a lit window on the hills at night and come stumbling in from the gloom, half blind, into a firelit room, turn and see you and there abide? If it were true, and if I thought they would let me be, I almost wish it were tonight I died. Karamagi.
really hard to find a poem that had anything to do with a bottle. Um, not really my major kind of material, but I did find one, and this is an old one from oh, coming on for 30 years ago, and it's called In Essence. If you were to bottle it, the essence of wet Saturday morning on the slippery, dog-shit-strewn prom of moist, grey, early salt hill. Wouldn't it be a remedy of value for the depressed, the sick of spirit, the sad at heart, the lost and the loveless, that feeling on waking of wishing sleep would return. If you took it and watered it down, shook it many times and diluted again to homeopathic proportions till there was nothing left measurable by science of the misery of that grey morning I woke without you in a shabby hostel looking out in vain hope across the bay to Ballyvaughan, where I wished my luck might change. A rain so persistent, it soaked the children's pictures in the boot of the car and affected the lights, a fact I didn't know 
until I needed them in the dark on the way back to the new place that still didn't feel like home. Cold house on a hill where I lived with my past, those nightmare memories that surfaced slowly, the past that helped me build the walls between us. If I took that remedy, that bottled great day pit of the stomach, absolute rock bottom, can't get any lower essence. Do you think I could learn to live with joy? And really the only thing I think of when I hear bottle is Biddy Early's bottle and her blue glass bottle that comes with me when I'm telling stories. And I don't know why I didn't bring it tonight, but um, so I guess the rest of what I've selected for this evening is more to do with, yeah, continuing that remedies, even if they're not in bottles. So... This is propagating wild strawberries. There's a lot of us probably are gardeners and there. And during the you know, during the, the lockdowns, in the first phase of that it was quite nice to take part in Zoom courses. And one of the Zoom courses I was doing was a be a biodiversity champion for your community. So I learned about propagating things. I dig a grave today between two young hazel trees, shallow and small because of the stones and roots, and I place your still soft body curled as if asleep. I bring leafy half-mould to pile on the earthen mound, dry birch bark, wild strawberry runners, exhumed winter bulbs. I have been learning how to make leaf mould, to divide and propagate plants, that some of my intended kindness is cruel. Discovered how to make difficult choices, how to let go of one more small beloved to the earth. Later, a sowing full moon hangs high in the branches, a lantern to guide his long night walk in search of home, as fur and flesh melt away, seep into soil, a sacrifice to feed the hungry plants. Before Beotna, the small white flowers will show above the leaves and give their promise of tiny red fruits. I was at a meeting with poets 
from all over Clare <laughs> a week or two ago. And somebody gave me, somebody offered me some seeds. Oh, this is a seed poem. And it has a shape. It has a shape of a seed. <laughs> so, seed poem. A poet offered me sunflower seeds, saved from her garden, grey-white, without stripes. These were not for the birds, but for your acre, she told me, folding them into a used envelope. Later, I shook them onto my palm and sang a prayer that each one was a clutch of words that I could poke into a warmed and moistened hole in the earth and trust to grow into a poem. <laughs> oh, and this one rhymes. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> this is made new. And I'm just realising these all seem to be about burying things. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was not intentional. That um, must just be where I am at the moment. Um, made new. Place a flower, stone, leaf. Love's visible marker of grief. These things... The arts of healing follow the time of first revealing. The pain that must be witnessed, heard, before we write one single word. A world envisaged whole and thriving depends on more than just surviving. For the broken story to be mended, first it must be apprehended. What is damaged must first be seen, as it is now, as it could have been. Then make a conscious choice to blend the best of old and new. Transcend the wounded story. End, unmake, and then begin again. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yes. This one is not about burying things, I promise you. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm usually making something one way or another and yeah when it comes to writing, if the words just don't come, you know, I always feel, well, at least I'm doing something useful with my hands or whatever. So this is If Words Fail. If words fail you, use your hands. If the poem eludes you, take up yarn, fabric and scissors, needle and thread. Your hands remember even if you forget. With good materials, you can still make something beautiful. The best you can hope for from a poem, did it touch a heart? 
help fill a space, remind, remember, re-end-soul. Sure, the medicine is not always clear. Not every remedy has a recipe. But best pick the green leaves anyway. Let your hands be guided by the day. This leaf, this flower, this root. Trust your old wise self to know. Cut green willow whips and bend. Weave a magical container, something to contain, oops, something to hold the truth. Scoop handfuls of blue clay, slurping from moist earth to mould and shape a bowl. Plat fistfuls of long grass, twist straw to form a rope to bind the spell that holds you. If still words do not come, macerate petals and leaves. Grind rocks to dusty pigments. Let soft earth be a canvas to draw upon with feathers, sticks and stones. Wait. Watch. Listen to the whispers. Breathe it all in and believe. There will be wonders. It takes as long as it takes. Okay, I think that's it for this evening, but I'll maybe just do this yeah, one it. more. Yeah, this one more, which is another one of the ones that has a shape. <laughs> so, conversation. We look at each other, sorry, just before I start, you know, you know those optical illusion things where you see a candlestick, but really it's two faces looking at each other. Yeah, okay, conversation. We look at each other and a vessel forms between us. It is no illusion, but a container we create when we look into another's eyes. All our words flow from that cup, pouring easy as liquid. We may see things differently, but if we are willing, we can drink from this cup of partnership as if it were a communion vessel and one day we may even realise this is exactly what it is. Thank you.
and tonight I'd like to read a sequence of poems from my new book which is coming out next year called Lip Service and some of the poems are autobiographical and in my life I guess I've had to make a journey um, reconciling two halves of my life um, the North of Ireland, the South of Ireland um, Protestantism, Catholicism um, so in, in this journey and in, in this sequence of poems, I, um, I'm tr I try to do that. Um, so I'll begin with... Um, I was born in Belfast in 1946, and uh, it's always been a divided and difficult place to live. Um, I was born a Protestant, so I was conditioned into a certain way of looking at history. I never had any Irish history, you know, it was all British history. So my journey to, to become a nationalist in the truest sense of the word. I'm not politically kind of um, militant, but I believe that one island will probably be the best solution. But the journey to that has been so difficult and so painful. And for me to reconcile that in me has been quite a journey too. Um, fraught with danger. So some of these are dangerous. This is called A Sticky End, Belfast, 1972. My Aunt Florrie said that a young Protestant girl from Sandy Row got badly beaten for going out with, word has it, a young Catholic boy. A gang of my Aunt Florrie's women friends punched and kicked her against the clock bar, plate glass window, and she went through it, all because she wouldn't answer their questions, because she couldn't answer their questions. Being a deaf mute, they didn't know she had no voice and no choice. So what could she say anyhow, being that way? They knew she was Protestant and he was Catholic, and that was enough. No explanation needed, deaf mute or not. She got what she deserved, my Aunt Florrie said. Going out with a Catholic boy and the cheek of her, drinking in a pub, in a Protestant pub, in Protestant Sandy Row. My Aunt Florrie never heard what became of her Catholic boyfriend and often wondered aloud. She said, if he was a deaf mute too, and if he came to a sticky end. 
Now, Sandy Row is a very Protestant area, and of course it aligns with a Catholic area. So inevitably these factional interfaces, you know, brought conflict and excitement and challenge. And this is one, one of my experiences again. It's called Driving Blind, North Belfast, 3 a.m., Friday, November 1970. I am driving my father's new blood-red Morris saloon from Protestant East Belfast along the Catholic Dock Road past the LMS railway station to York Street after a late date up the Craiga Road. There's no street lights in Belfast curfew time for security reasons to protect us from extremist terrorism and petty crime. I have only headlights, city landmarks, and my instinct to guide me at 3 a.m. As I approach a dark and unpredictably dangerous street zone, a faction interface it's called, where the vandalised traffic lights are stuck threateningly and permanently on red, and simultaneously, surreptitiously, a suspicious gang of men, evanescent shadows, swiftly glide into view, clad incognito, hooded like the Ku Klux Klan, silent vigilantes, armed with baseball bats, block my exit plan. Suddenly confronted, I am afraid, very afraid, afraid to stop, Afraid to go, suddenly I am paralysed with fear. As Ulster situations often spontaneously degenerate from normal to extreme, suddenly I have only local history and Belfast instinct to interpret a terrifying landscape. Suddenly I slow as though to stop whilst creating an appropriate fake Catholic name and destination. In a nightmare moment of panic, I apprehensively contemplate the outcome of this encounter. I am unknown, non-local, non-sectarian, non-resident, non-familiar face, driving at 3 a.m. in this segregated and intimidating place, and I might regret it if I comply with their hushed yet very tangible threat. I could bloodily die after they've kneecapped or belligerently beaten me to an agnostic pacifist pulp, along with my father's beautiful, shining pride and joy, his new blood-red Morris car, which could be smashed to smithereens, burnt or hijacked to smuggle death to another opposing terrorist group the UVF, the UFF, the UDA, the British Army, the UDR, the IRA, the Provisionals, or the new IRA. But more importantly than all this, I can't let them take my father's lovely new car. Suddenly, there is only one real choice as they threateningly wave their baseball bats at me. To escape all blame, I must be brave. There is no traffic. I rev up the car, accelerate, and swerve around the bollard in the opposite lane, speeding through the red light, taking flight from the vigilantes. I lower my head, not daring to look back, rattling up the gears, holding my nerve. I squint at the black world ahead, hear I angry loud shouts of stop behind me, and think the dreadful thought, if they have guns, I could be shot dead at the wheel, a corpse driving blind. But I made my choice and I may yet peacefully survive, like my birthplace, Belfast, to find my voice and build a better future here than what I left behind.
you know, unlike many of the poems that have been read, they're not, they're kind of um, prose poems. They're, they're um, a narrative, like they tell a story. And they're in my new book, and they come in a sequence, which are kind of called Good Friday, Good Friday Agreement, Protocol Poems, or Postcards from Belfast. Um, because they're kind of inspired partly by the Good Friday agree Agreement and the way it gets left and dropped. And yet it's very important to keep peace on this island. Um, this is a poem called Only Our Rivers Run Free, Portrush 1971. Drunkenly amorous, we lie entwined on the coat-layered bed, cuddling in Liam's attic bedroom at a student end-of-term party. Dimly distant Leonard Cohen's Marianne floats up from the noisy dance below. Our lips kiss in time to the lyrics. You've touched her perfect body with your mind. I reach into my top pocket to liberate the durex, which slips from my grasp to the floor. I discreetly sweep the carpet with my urgent, anxious hand. Below the bed, I feel the metal rim of a milk crate and reaching further discover numerous small glass milk bottles ice cold to my fingertips. I happily anticipate a treasure trove of stashed stout. I look below and dimly see a crate of primed petrol bombs glistening like tickled trout. Fabric fuses sticking out like destination tickets to a police patrol or a British army platoon. Shocked and suddenly sober, we reappraise our casual contacts, feeling compromised by neutrality. We descend from the attic bedroom, briefly rejoin the party and say goodbye to Liam, who inquires of me, leaving so soon? The party's only starting. I'll put on Dylan. The times they are a-changing. If you like, Liam, I say, or maybe Paul Brady, only our rivers run free. This one's called An Unidentified Device. This is 1971. Again, we're going right back when times were very, like, full of, full of the army and the police and any, you know, anything could happen at any time. New University of Ulster, 1971. The university emergency alarm bell resounded harshly from afar while I was having coffee and a cigarette with Andy in the bar. They're probably testing the fire system as often before. No stress, I said. And we'll go through the usual exit motions, Andy disinterestedly added. Then we heard the janitor's tremulous voice over the crackling public address system, urging a speedy evacuation of our building in the interest of public safety. We reluctantly rose with others and did as bidden, leaving the snug indoors to stand forlornly outdoors, yawning on the frosty lawn, clutching cold instant coffees and gazing blankly, pleased at the possibility of missing our next boring seminar, yet growing incredulous that our new university might instantly be blown apart, demolished by a terrorist bomb before our very eyes, taking heart we happily surmised on a positive note, no more studying Irish history, until we heard another noise, 
the ominous clanging bells and shrill sirens of security, the paramedics, fire, police and armed British military personnel whose vehicles suddenly encircled menacingly, fencing us with their, within their perimeter as if we were a dangerous enemy to be constrained. Then commanded by a military megaphone, move further away for greater protection. While the British Army advanced, some clad in body armour, cautiously searching for an unidentified device, the military megaphone mechanically explained, until eventually some slow-moving bomb disposal soldiers tentatively extracted themselves from within, wheeling a large cello case on a rattling trolley, which they tenderly laid on the grass, as if a wounded friend after battle. They then stepped delicately back, respectful as a guard of honour might, to stand uneasy at a ceremonial catafalque. The military megaphone then demanded the object's owner, and Andy, my friend, yelled in panic, fearing a controlled explosion. It's my cello. I left it in the lavatory. Sorry, I completely forgot. Unimpressed, the military megaphone imperiously ordered, step forward and open the case. Andy did as bidden, and as if to prove a point, Andy retrieved his cello, spike and bow, sat squatly on the closed case, and briefly played a learner's snatch of Brahms' cello concerto. While the soldiers looked bemused, we enthusiastically stamped our freezing feet, clapped our hands and cheered, until the military megaphone reassuringly declared, the emergency has been cleared go back inside. We did as bidden and went indoors, bearing Andy and his cello shoulder high to continue our study of Irish history as the British Army retreated and security swiftly disappeared. One called the Derry Soccer Game, 1970 playing football in Derry. The Derry game was nearing half-time. We played on a rutted, muddy patch of grass in chilly loch foil, wind and rain. It was an evenly matched winter soccer league tie. Hard fought, no score so far. From midfield I swept a long pass to our centre forward who trapped the ball to turn and shoot for goal when suddenly, bang! A big bomb exploded in nearby Cregan. We saw a thin plume of black smoke rise across the road from our council ground. Shocked and shaken by the booming sound, both teams stopped play, dropped to the ground, then stood aimlessly around in stunned silence, staring at one another, each of us checking. No one spoke, doing a head count. We saw no players or officials down, a near miss, no loss of life or injury here. We heard sirens, so far so good. The whistle blew, the game resumed. Our centre forward shot for goal and missed. Our goalie saved the penalty. Throw-ins, corner kicks, free kicks taken and tackles happily made. We all felt relieved, glad to be alive, good to be doing normal soccer in this abnormal world. 
a non-political, non-violent, non-sectarian action. No factional history happened here, where we played a pointless stalemate. Nearby, life's a bitch in our crazy world. Luckily, no harm done on this pitch. No one to blame, no substitutes needed. A few bumps and bruises, just the same ordinary Saturday afternoon Derry football game. And one called Who Falls the Best, 1978. Glancing from the front window of my parents' home and birthplace, where I played war games, friend or foe, as a young Belfast boy, I see him crouching behind our privet hedge, like my daddy, busy with the daffodils on the lawn near the gate. A young soldier kneels. In childhood, he could have been my older brother playing with his toy gun, pretend shooting me and me mock dying in our favourite game. Who falls the best? The soldier's Lee Enfield semi-automatic rifle is tight-gripped like Gordon Shears. He is a corporal in the corky uniform of the Lancashire Fusiliers. He wears a forage cap, a munitions belt, a flak jacket, a backpack, and has a shoulder walkie-talkie which crackles softly as he whispers in the mic like the Beatles in the Cavern Club might about to play a hard day's night. One, two, three, four. Cover options. Alpha, Baker, Charlie, Delta, go. From street gardens on either side, soldiers slyly emerge from incognito, surrendering to summer. They swiftly shift shapes in a sunlit dance, weapons held askance. They glance at one another sheepishly, like shy boys gliding onward to a much-needed holiday romance. From my window, I am near enough to see his sweat blinding him as he turns in fear to see my anxious face in close observation, trapped behind my mother's net curtains, praying he will restrain from panic fire. I slide my head slowly out of sight, knowing this is no childhood game we played for fun. He knows full well my hand could hold a cocked gun. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much there.
thank you to our featured poets, Nikki Griffin, Kevin Chesser, who, in addition to his own poems, also read Timmy Coffey's Cat by Sonny Welsh and I Shall Not Go to Heaven When I Die by Helen Waddell, Ruth Marshall and Arthur Watson. The music by Lucy Thomas and Tom Fahey was Fly Me to the Moon, La Vie en Rose, Summertime and Honeysuckle Rose. Mm-hmm.